0: We're going to read together from the book of Judges, reading part of the story of Samson from from Judges chapter 14, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we come this morning to Your Word, and we ask that Your Holy Spirit would give us the understanding to grasp what You want to say to us this morning. You'd open our minds. You'd be the light in our darkness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading. Samuel, sorry, Samson's story in Judges 14. Last week, we read chapter 13, which was the story of the birth of Samson and the angel coming to his parents and telling them they were going to have a son who was set apart to deliver the people from the Philistines. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat, but he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. And he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and Samson held a feast as was customary for the young men. When the people saw him, they chose thirty men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet." For three days they could not give him an answer. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw himself on Samson, sobbing, you hate me, you don't really love me, you've given my people a riddle but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it to my father or mother, he replied. Why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So, on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have sold my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, and he went to Ascalon, that's the Philistine capital, struck down thirty of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast." Amen, and thanks be to God for His Word. There are sometimes when you read a Bible passage where it's an exciting story, but you're left thinking, what on earth? What on earth? And the story of Samson has this theme of riddles in it, but in a sense, the whole of the story, which is in, in, in Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, Is a riddle itself. How does something sweet come out of something that is dead? How can something good come out of so much destruction, violence, evil? How does something of the Spirit of God exist? in something that seems so sordid, so selfish, and so sinful? Or to put it another way, what is this oversexed, crazy, violent oath doing in my Bible? And I wonder if you felt that way this morning as we read it. It's even more so when you think back where we were last week, and for those that weren't here, just let me recap the passage, because what we had was a story last week, which, even if you don't know the story of Samson, sounded vaguely familiar, because the story went like this. There once was a woman, a young woman, who had not had any children, who didn't think she could have any children, who was visited by an angel, and the angel told her that she was going to have a child, and that child would grow up to be a savior who would deliver his people from their enemies. Does that story sound vaguely familiar? Because if it does, it's because it's the same story that we find in the births of when Sarah had Isaac, when Rachel had Joseph, but, uh, Jacob, and, and then we find it again in the New Testament, don't we, with Elizabeth and John the Baptist, and then with Mary and the Savior. Here is Samuel, Samson rather, set apart from birth, ordained by God from before He existed, destined for a remarkable life, filled with the Holy Spirit of God to save the people from their enemies, the Philistines, and then emerges onto the pages of history this horrible buffoon. What is going on here? And The riddle is actually part of a bigger riddle because the story of Samson actually illustrates the story of Israel itself. If you think about the story of Israel, here is God who sets apart a people for Himself. He calls them in Abraham right at the beginning, He says, my plan to redeem this world that's broken of sin is going to be to have this people that will be a light to the Gentiles, a people who I will bless and who will bless the nations through whom my promise of delivery will come. And yet, what do we find as we read the Old Testament? Book after book after book after book of the people screwing up. And the book of Judges, in one sense, is the darkest of those. The riddle. How can a holy, true, good, pure God use a bunch of screw-ups and keep using them? It's the riddle of the Old Testament, but it's also the riddle of the New Testament when you think about the disciples. It's the riddle of the letters, as you think about every single church that Paul writes to in every single one of those letters. He starts off by saying, you are saints called by the Lord, given this plan and this predestined thing. And then he writes in every chapter almost, particularly in the Corinthians, about telling them how they're getting it wrong, how they're doing evil, how they're deserting God. But then it's the riddle not just of the Bible, but it's the riddle of church history, and it's the riddle of us. You know, you buy books to read in the summer when you go on holiday, and if you're anything like me, you buy three times more books than you think you're going to read, and six times more books than you actually read. Am I the only one? Well, one of the books I I picked up to read on holiday, which I I, I have to say, I'd love to be able to recommend it to you, but I haven't actually finished it yet. But it's called, Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. And this book, from what I've skimmed on it, it's really going through the whole history of the Christian church and talking about how God did amazing, wonderful things that transformed the world through the church, the church which pioneered social care. The church which cared for the poor when the Roman society had no time for them, the church that stopped the gladiators, the, the church that combated slavery, the church that did so much, and yet you don't need to know much about church history to think of the dark days of the bullies and the power games and the violence and the Crusades. That's the history of God's working with the church, but it's not just the history of the church, because if you've been part of a church for any length of time, you have met some real saints, haven't you? You've met some really special people that God has used, that God has, has light has shined from and through, but I'll bet you've also met some bullies. People on power games, people trying to get their own way. And the reality is that the bullies and the saints are very often the same person at different times. And we've all been, as well as met, The bullies and the saints in everything that we're doing. You know, one of the things I really like about the Bible is that it has a brutal honesty about the people that God works with. We have a temptation in the church to put stained glass windows up of saints, people that we should admire, Very often it's the apostles or the disciples, but sometimes you go into churches and it'll be other figures from church history. And we will look at them and we will want to see the light of God shining through these people and their stories. But when we look around at Christians in church today, we sometimes see that light of God shining through, but we sometimes see things that disappoint us. And the Bible, as it paints the figures that we know so well, paints them in all their beauty and their brokenness in every page. There is not one character in the whole Bible except the Lord Jesus Christ who the Bible doesn't bring us face to face with their screw-ups and their abuses and their violence and their selfishness. Why? Because that's our story as well. And here is the tremendous piece of hope that comes in that. God uses screw-ups. And I'm delighted by that because it's the only way I've got any chance. And I'm delighted by that because it's the only way the Church of Scotland has any chance. And I'm delighted by that because it's the only way the church of every denomination has any chance at all. You know, we sang that song with the children, My Lighthouse. And, you know, some folk will like these modern songs and some people will hate them musically. That's okay. We've got different tastes. I'll tell you why I like it. And it's got nothing to do with the rhythms or the beats of the actions. It's got to do with this. It's one of very few songs that are there for the Christian church today that is brutal in its honesty. In my questions and in my doubts, in my failures, it speaks of. The God who leads us through the storms. You are the peace. I am the troubled sea. And we need much more of that in our thinking. And we might go and say, these stories, these stories full of of broken people, they have no place in the Bible. We want something holy. We want something pure. And I have to say to you, the Lord comes and says, I know your weakness. And yet I have a plan and a purpose for you. And God would work out a plan and a purpose even in the life of Samson. Samson's story then is part of Israel's story, Israel that was supposed to be a light and a blessing in the world. It was supposed to be salt and light. It was supposed to model to the world a different way of living when you lived for the Lord, when you knew His glory, when you followed in His ways. That's why they were given on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments and the whole of law that they might live differently. Now, there's some parts of the law we look at and we can understand. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, live and care about the poor, and that's very strong in the law of God in Leviticus. But there's other bits that we scratch our heads at, and it says that they have to get circumcised. It it says that they have to to not eat pork. Uh, And we wonder what's wrong with pork, and what's, what's so important about circumcision? But here's the point, the very simple point that maybe helps us understand a lot of the Old Testament law. What it's saying is this, symbolically, these laws are given that you might be different, that you might own your difference. Every time you go going to have a meal, you'll own it because you can't eat certain foods. Every time you think about marriage and relationships and sexuality and all of these things, you'll own your difference, men, because you'll know that you are set apart from birth in that area as well for the Lord. And that's why a lot of the Old Testament rules that seem weird to us are there. They are to set apart. And if this whole nation was to be set apart, to be a holy nation, then the leaders of that nation had a particular role, the kings and the prophets and the priests, to model for the people what it meant to be set apart, to be different. And among that was a group of people that were called to be Nazarites. Now, it's got, Nazarite has nothing to do with Nazareth, just to be clear. A Nazarite was someone that was called to live a particularly distinct life in the Old Testament. And there were three or four basic rules. One was they didn't cut their hair, which meant they they stood out. One was that they didn't drink wine. And the other one was that they didn't touch dead things, which again seems a bit weird, but it's about saying I'm different. I'm standing back from the world and modeling something different in society Here's Samson then. He is a Nazarite. He's supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. He's set apart for this. That means he's not to cut his hair, he's not to drink, and he's not to touch dead things. Now, you see the problem right away, because he's going to do all of these things. And the other thing that was true of the Israelites is they were told that they were not to intermarry with the people of the land. Now, that had nothing to do with racism or race or anything like that. It had purely to do with this. If you're set apart for God, and you're to do that down the generations of Abraham, you're to bring your children up in this faith and everything else, then you are to see your marriage patterns within that light as well. And they were to marry among their own people, people who loved God as well. Samson, goes to Timnah. What is Timnah? Well, Timnah is in the Holy Land, but it's a Philistine camp, a Philistine military camp. So the first thing we should notice about Timnah is Timnah is a problem, because this land is supposed to belong to God's people, but because God's people have been unfaithful that the Philistines who are pagans and their enemies have been able to invade them and put their military into a place where actually the Israelites have got to the place where they're calling the Philistines our masters. They're oppressed by this people because of their sinfulness. So, if Samson had gone with God's eyes to Timnah, he would have been very upset. He would have come and said, this should not be, this place should not be, these soldiers should not be here, this camp should not be here. This is because of our sinfulness, and I'm called as a leader to speak out against that, to do something about that, to lead the people back to what God had intended them to be, different and distinct. You see, when God sends His Spirit on us, and this is something that's quite important, He does not send His Spirit on us to make us happy. (laughs) He sends His Spirit on us so that we might know His heart so that we might get upset by the things that upset God, so that we might be motivated to pray about those things and motivated to do something about those things. The closer you walk with the Lord Jesus, the more you will see injustice, the more you will see poverty, the more you will see godlessness, the more you will see brokenness around you, and the more angry it will get you, the more motivated you will be to pray, Thy will be done, Lord. And the more motivated you will do to do something. I, I love C.S. Lewis who said, if, you know, if, you, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a Christian, don't think this is about being happy. Because actually, if you follow the Lord Jesus, you will become more discontent with things that are there. You will live a more useful life, but you will become more discontent. In fact, the Lord said, if you follow me, you will endure persecution. It won't make your life easier. C.S. Lewis' advice was, if you want to be happy... Don't try Christianity. Try port. But so many of us, aren't we? We're, we're, we're trying to live lives where we just enjoy things. And actually, we're called to something far more than that. So, Samson comes to Timnah, to the camp of the Philistines, and he should have seen, if he'd looked by the Spirit of God's and God's eyes, everything was wrong there. But what did Samson see in Timnah? He saw a sexy lady and he wanted her. The eyes were all about me and what I want. I see, I want, I take. That's Samson, isn't it? Never mind my calling, never mind my vows, never mind how God sees things. I'm supposed to lead the people in a moral different direction. To be a different people, but I'll just take what I want, I'll do what I want. And in one sense, what Samson is doing here is exactly what everybody else is doing. Because what the Bible actually says is he saw this woman. And when his father said, Do you really? Can you not find a godly woman that that, that, that shares what we believe in the Lord? And Samson says, No, she looks good in my eyes. She's the one for me. She looks good in my eyes. And what Samson is doing is in in one sense, what all the people are doing, it says at the end of the book of Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Never mind what God sees. Just do what I want to do, what I see, what I'll take. And Samson is doing exactly the thing, the same thing. He'll do the same thing later on. You know, I see the honey. I'll take it. Never mind it's a dead body that I'm not supposed to be touching. Timna's actually a place where there's vineyards, drink, parties, getting drunk. And there's a sort of, sort of a, a tale here of a stagnate, isn't there, that's going on here in the background. This is a guy that's supposed to not to drink. Don't care. It just seems good to me, led by impulse. And the problem with the sin, sin, sin of Samson is this. It drags others in too. Because what does he do later on? Not only is his, his parents saying, well, actually, that's not the way we brought you up, Samson. And he's saying, I don't care. He then goes and gets the honey, which he's not supposed to touch. And what does he do? He brings it back and he gives it to mum and dad. Now, that's not done out of love. That's not done out of, hey, here's nice honey. You might like this. He's a birthday present for you, dad. That's done out of, well, I'm involved in sin. And if I get you involved in it as well, then I'll not feel so bad. And that's really two ways that we can exist in churches, actually. We can either be living lives that are looking to God set our hearts on Him, and in doing that, in living differently, we begin to influence other people around us. We begin to be as a people who begin to move towards God, or as we get involved in things that we know we shouldn't, we begin to involve others. You're always doing one of two things in a church. You're either building people up in godliness, or you're taking them away from it. It's one or the other. And Samson, who's supposed to be leading, is certainly doing that one. And we do the same sometimes. We get involved in gossip. What do we do when we get involved in gossip? We involve other people. We get involved in bad-mouthing folk. What do we do when we do that? We involve other people in the conspiracy so that we don't feel so bad. Happens all the time. Samson might have said, well, I couldn't help it. I, I, I fell in love. And that's often the way that we, we do things today. I, I, I just wanted but Israel was supposed to follow a different way. He was supposed to be part of a people who would change the world, not who would just say I want everything the world has to offer. There's a story in in the New Testament of a guy called Demas and in Philemon Paul calls him a co-worker. He's working with me on the mission. He's a minister and in fact, in Colossians, Paul names him alongside Luke, who wrote the, the gospel of Luke, as one of the key people. And then Paul will write later on, he says, Demas has deserted me because he loved the world so much. And by that, he didn't mean he had got a big heart for people in the world. He meant he loved all the world had to offer, just too much to live distinctively for the Lord Jesus. You know, that verse, um, we're not singing it this morning, but I-, I love it where it says, tell me the old, old story. When you have caused a fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear, and when this world's glory shall dawn upon my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes me whole. So, what is the hope? the gospel hope in this passage? Because we always should read a passage of Scripture and ask that question. What is the gospel hope for us? first is the identification of realizing that God uses screw-ups. And here's the second thing. In verse 4, it says this. His parents are wondering what He's playing at, and it says simply this. Let me find it. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. You see, Samson should have gone to Timnah and seen the problem and led God's people to do something about it, to repent of their sins and to see the Lord driving out this people that were oppressing them, but Samson didn't do that. But nevertheless, God was going to work through Samson, through his brokenness, through his depravity and all the rest of it, to actually begin to drive the Philistines out anyway. And here's the hopeful message. God is at work. And God's work depends on His faithfulness, not mine. God's promise to work through my life is unconditional, It doesn't depend on me doing X, Y, or Z. God is going to work anyway. Now, let me give you another example of this, a story from the Old Testament that you you maybe know better, which is the story of Joseph. You know Joseph, multicolored dream coat? He's got a bunch of brothers. It's not a band of brothers. It's definitely a bunch of brothers. They don't like him. They're jealous of him. They mug him. They assault him. And they contemplate fratricide. And then they decide they're not really that bad. They can't really do their brother in, so they'll do something much nicer. They'll just sell him into slavery, as you do. And Joseph goes away, and he ends up a slave. He ends up working for Potiphar. He has another bunch of people telling lies about him. He ends up in Pharaoh's jail, and then God uses him and raises him up so that he becomes the prime minister of Egypt, and he delivers the people from a famine. And then years later, his brothers come to him not knowing who he is, And they're just looking for food because Joseph is now able to save Israel from a famine too. And then he reveals to his brothers who he is, and they are terrified because they are waiting on his revenge. And what does Joseph say? You intended it for evil, but God worked it for good. Now, what he's not saying to his brothers is, it's okay what you did. It's fine. God was really using you, so just feel good about it. No, he's not saying that at all, is he? What you did was absolutely terrible. But God is bigger than your sin. What you did was, well, it wasn't unforgivable, but it was awful. But God is bigger than your brokenness. God is bigger than our dysfunctional family. God will work through this awful dysfunctional family to bring a blessing to the world despite everything that it does. And we find that story time and time and time again find it in the book of Judges, these characters who come to save the people who who seem to get worse and worse, and then we'll think, well, they lead to the book of Kings, and the book of Kings where He sends, God sends these people who will deliver them, Saul and David and all the rest of it, and every single one of them mucks up as well, and so on it goes. But all of them God uses, and yet, and all of them God is working through to bring the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will deliver the people from their sins. That's why Paul will say, all things work together for good with those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. He's certainly not saying all things are good or all things you do are good or, or, or are for good. He's not saying that at all. He's very realistic, Paul. What he's saying is God's power to redeem this world, God's determination to redeem this world, God's determination to bring healing and salvation is so powerful that it will not be frustrated when we screw up. And that gives me two reasons for hope when I screw up. One is that I know God forgives me, And that's certainly a message that we were talking about with the children as we did particularly the story of Jonah, God who gives a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and 77 chances or 70 times seven, as he says to Peter, the forgiveness goes on and on and on. But it's actually more than that because it's not just that God forgives, it's that God says, the purpose I have for your life will not be thwarted. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus as Paul writes to the Philippians it will not be thwarted. And therefore, it is not the case of saying, well, I, I you know, God called me to do certain things. I completely messed up. It's done. It's finished. The opportunity's missed. That's it. He'll forgive me, yeah, but I don't have a purpose anymore. Not at all. Not at all. For God is at work even when it's broken. And God is at work even when the church is failing. And God is at work even when generations of Christians get things wrong because God is is powerful and God is loving and God is never frustrated by our brokenness and our sinfulness for He sent the Lord Jesus to overcome not just sin but all the evil and destruction of the world and to be the perfect strong man, the only perfect strong man, the Savior. And So today let us return to Him knowing not just His forgiveness but that He has a plan and a purpose since before all time for you, which you are being baptized into in the Lord Jesus, and he will carry it out to completion.